Hey, and welcome to another episode of the SERS Group podcast. I'm JC. And I'm Barbara. And today we are talking about the diagnostic blood markers for SERS. It's very exciting. It is. Before <laughs> we jump in, we just want to remind everyone that Barbara and I have gone through SERS treatment. We have a community of people who are healing from SERS. We've read the textbook, but we are not medical providers. So none of this should be taken as medical advice. This is just our experience with the topic of SERS. And with that, um, I'm sure, well, I feel like the the blood markers are always a, uh, this like big mountain to climb when you're first, when you think you might have SERS. You're, you, there's all of this alphabet soup of, of markers that you need to have checked and they're not usually checked. And some people will look at you funny when you ask for them for these, uh, ask for, ask to be tested. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, I think this is a, a good, a good, good one for y'all. If you're curious about what all these blood markers mean and like why you're getting them tested. Yes. So these blood markers are part of what you would have done as a part of getting diagnosed with SIRS. So typically they do a blood draw and they're looking for two things. One is the haplotypes associated with SIRS. So you can see that genetic susceptibility, but then the second part of the blood work are these markers and they show it's kind of different from like autoimmune blood markers in that it's not looking for um, adaptive immune response. It's not looking for antibodies. It's actually looking for your innate immune response. And that's what SARS is, is activation of your innate immune system that then isn't able to transition over to the adaptive immune system, which would create antibodies and help you eliminate the biotoxin. So these are really specific blood markers associated with SARS. And for me personally, it was part of the reason I had such buy-in with the Shoemaker protocol. When I first heard about it was because it is so specific. It's not just looking for general inflammation. It's looking for really specific markers. So the first one we're going to talk about today is MMP9. And this one is a marker that will show the blood-brain barrier permeability. And so a lot of people who have high MMP9 will notice that they have a lot of neuroinflammation. They have a lot of reactivity. Um, these people will also very often experience the, that the binders are harder to tolerate, and that's because they have that permeability in their brain. So they're just going to be more affected, um, affected or affected by <laughs> medications that they take. Um, and just for fun, because I I want to say it, MMP nine stands for Matrix Metallopeptidase nine. Did I do I that right? That you, you just went for it because I was like, I'm just going to go with the. The initials because there's no way I'm going to say that publicly and mess it up and have people in the comments telling me how to say it correctly. Metallopeptidase, like there's like like a, a sing-song quality to it. I don't know. I just remember at one point early on that I really tried to pronounce that correctly, so I needed to bring that back out. So I'm glad no, I, I love that, and I, I feel probably like we're all going to remember it. There we go. <laughs> my, uh, I noticed with my MMP9, it actually went up, or and it, it so it went got worse. I will say, uh, over the course of treatment and, uh, my practitioner had recommended or had asked me, Oh, are you taking your omega threes or your high dose fish oil? And I said, eh, 
not as uh, reliably and consistently as I should. And she's like, that's probably what's causing this. So she uh, reiterated to me to make sure I'm taking uh, what I'm taking, which is Omaprem. Um, so that that's my my one thing that I'll, I'll add to that. Yeah, another good point. Um, so to treat high MMP9, <laughs> it's typically the omega-3s and then the low amylose diet. So especially when you get, this is one of the blood markers that's corrected later on in the Shoemaker protocol. Um, and this is when your provider may recommend to you a low amylose diet. And they have found that this uh, this blood marker helps, is corrected by eating low amylose. There you go. The next one is VEGF which I think is vasoepithelial growth factor. Uh, let's see, I have it here. It's vascular endothelial oh. growth factor. I'm just making up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it was kind of close. I don't know. No, I it was really like close. What epithelial means now. Yeah. And right. Endo instead of ep epo. Anyway. I'm going to have to look that up. Um, this one is associated with vascularity pulmonary issues. Um, so people with chronically high VEGF may find that their symptoms include like a difficulty in breathing. For me, I actually, I have high VEGF. It's something we have had to work really hard to correct for myself. Um, it just feels harder to breathe. Like it's, it's really hard to explain. It's not like I can't take a full breath. I can take a full breath, but it feels like I'm not getting all of that air. Um, and so to correct high VEGF or it might be low VEGF, this is a good time to bring up that my favorite resource for looking at the SERS blood markers is the HoffmanCenter.com has this amazing, super comprehensive write-up about the SERS blood markers. We'll leave it in the show notes for everyone because I reference it all of the time and I'm pretty sure it's low VEGF, not high VEGF. Um, but if it's out of range, which covers my butt, um, <laughs> The way that this is fixed is, again, the omega-3s, just getting through the treatment and eliminating the biotoxins, but then also scaling up your exercise over time. So this was huge for me. I would always get that push and crash phenomenon. When I would try and work out, I would push because I felt good, and then I would crash and then not work out for several days, and it was just this awful cycle of pushing and crashing. But if you very slowly scale up your exercise, so like walk five minutes a day, then the next week, 10 minutes a day, then the next week, 12 minutes a day. It's painful if you're someone who does like to be active, but it actually helps you in the long run because you are able to tolerate that exercise long-term. And just for context, now I'm up to, you know, 45 minute walks every day and 20 minutes of resistance training five times a week. Good job. And I, uh, uh, I do think that it's a good marker to track. Unfortunately, um, I did not get my veg f tested until very recently and it was very low so uh so that that kind of makes sense and i've always had that what i i think the doctors i think i remember a doctor telling me when i was young that i had like exercise induced asthma just because it mm. like hurt to breathe um whenever i would do anything and that's always my excuse for not doing cardio and all kinds of stuff like that but um, but that that really makes sense to me. So that's clicking for me right here as we record. Uh, but that's yeah, that is not a marker that I tested early on, unfortunately. So I only have my recent uh, um, results on that. But I did just get some more blood work in the last week. So we'll see if that improved at all. But also shout out to the doctor that when you as a child told them it hurts to breathe. 
they said, oh, it's exercise-induced asthma. <laughs> How do doctors live with themselves? I don't know. Uh, yep. It's broken, guys. The system's broken. Anyway. The next blood marker is TGF beta 1 or trans growth factor beta 1. This one, if it's high, is very closely associated with joint pain, tissue remodeling. But typically, we always talk about those like SIRS hallmark kind of like manifestations where for you it was GI, for me it was joint pain. And you can see this in TGF beta 1. You can really see the joint pain with associated with the TGF beta 1. Yeah. And that makes sense uh, for me because mine has been uh, low or l- under, uh, you know, within range, if we want to call it that. Uh, and and so I do have a couple things that come up, especially if I go off carnivore very specifically, like my knee decides to yell at me or plantar uh, fasciitis starts to freak out. And I don't know if that is, I know it's not joint, but is that kind of in the same category, would you say? Yes. Yeah, so okay. We say joint pain, but really it's uh, inflammation of tendons and ligaments that are pulling on those joints. And so it can cause joint pain. But what you're experiencing with plantar fasciitis is anthesis, what Mm. I had when I had my ankylosing spondylitis. So yeah, it's just inflammation of those tendons and ligaments. Um, And so kind of to that end, um, treating TGF beta one is very much that low amylose diet, treating the rest of the protocol up until that point. And then there's like this like last ditch effort medication that your provider can prescribe to you if you really can't get that number down. Yeah, no, that's great. And it, as you said, it, I do not really, especially compared to you, I don't really deal with, with joint pain or any kind of tendon, other issues. Um, and, uh, and my TGF markers uh, reflect that. The other thing I wanted to mention about this one is LabCorp recently changed the ranges. So on Hoffman Center, this is another point. Hoffman Center is in Canada, so I can't speak to the ranges on there being accurate for the U.S. Uh, when we say it's a really good resource, I mean more for just like looking at what the blood markers mean and how it might manifest in your body and how the providers treat it. Um, but the TGF beta one, it was back in June, I believe, that they changed the ranges. So if you had your TGF beta one taken before then and after then those numbers aren't from LabCorp. Those numbers might not be comparable. I just wanted to mention that because I went to my provider, I got blood drawn in July and my TGF beta one was super high. And she was like, oh, we, we can do nothing with this number because it doesn't mean anything because the range has changed. And I was like, you took 22 vials of my blood. Why did we take this? (laughs) Oh man. I'm I'm excited to dig into the next one because it's so controversial. Good old MSH. MSH, melanocyte stimulating hormone. So uh, I recently did a class on what is SIRS in the SIRS group, and I spent way too much time on the biotoxin pathway. The biotoxin pathway, if you haven't like looked at it and you have SIRS, it's fascinating because it shows you how it's multi-system, multi-symptom. Because I think a lot of people with SIRS are like, okay, that's that's every symptom, but it's very specifically these symptoms because mostly because of MSH. So what happens is your body has this encounter with a biotoxin. It understands it's a foreign body, but not how to remove it. And so your body releases the innate immune system, part of which is these inflammatory proteins called cytokines. The cytokines are very sticky and they stick to the leptin receptors in your pituitary gland, which then impacts your ability to 
generate MSH, melanocyte stimulating hormone. And if you heard this, you would think, oh, melanocyte, melanin, it just impacts my skin. But no, this hormone is a key hormone. It impacts so many different parts of your body. If you haven't seen the biotoxin pathway, definitely check it out because you can see how it impacts like melatonin and then therefore it can disrupt your sleep cycles. It disrupts uh, sex hormone production and therefore you know, can affect things like your libido or for women, their periods. We have a whole episode about that. Um, so this, this hormone is like so important in so many different functions of the human body. So if your MSH is low, it's typically why a lot of us have the symptoms that we do. Yes. And I have to say, I don't even know if this is necessarily good advice because all of these markers are important and several of them are needed for diagnosis officially. But if I have somebody who is SIRS curious and doesn't want to jump into the deep end of this, like could be about a thousand dollar, you know, if it's not covered by insurance, blood, blood, and might even be more, um, uh, blood workup. I always say, at least check your MSH. Like I feel at least do that. Cause it, you know, chances are it's, you know, if you have some, some major issues like leaky gut hormone issues, um, just you just, something isn't right, especially if you're, you are carnivore and you're doing all the things like you're sleeping well, and you're drinking all the water and you have electrolytes and you're doing all the stuff that we're supposed to do. Um, I almost said sunning your balls. Uh, (laughs) and then I did anyway. Uh, but if you're doing all the things and you still don't feel good, um, yeah, check, check your MSH at the very least. I'm glad that I was able to have that moment for you. <laughs> I say I, I say these things so for JC. That's that's why I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, MSH is just such a it's it's so key to like everything. And it it's what is it in like 80% or more of people with SIRS have like low or undetectable MSH. So it's just it's a really good, like if you really are scared of doing the whole blood work thing, like throw in MSH next time you get your, you know, your uh, cholesterol panel or whatever it is that's, you know, easy for you to take that you do do. Um, that that would be my big recommendation. Interestingly, in the surviving mold shoemaker group, it, there's no consensus on whether or not you can raise MSH, whether or not it's important to do that to fully heal. It's also controversial about whether or not you can impact this number at all. I did find that by laying out in the sun every day, and I kind of had to do the scaling up thing like for exercise with the push and crash because I was having histamine reactions to the sun. So I had to slowly build up a solar callus. I said that in quotes for anyone who's listening and not viewing um, by exposing myself to sun in small doses and then building a callus so I could be out there longer. Um, but there, there are a couple of studies that show that getting UV light can stimulate MSH. So I was just operating under the assumption that a sunshine feels good and B it might be helpful for this. And my MSH did raise. So, um, that would be the one thing I would suggest if, if someone's kind of looking for something they might be able to do at home to start feeling better is see if you can get some sunshine in. Yeah. And I, I don't know that, Again, I'll I'll say it, even though we you said it earlier, not a doctor, not a medical provider. This is not medical advice, but I um have a very limited way of getting sun here, even though I live in Las Vegas. So I actually have been doing tanning for um gosh, almost a year, 
like it's been a while, but I have seen, I have my, my blood markers up just for reference. And my MSH started at undetectable back in April of 2022. And then by December of that year, it had gone up to 13.7. And then in August of this year, uh, it was 15.9. So it's slowly creeping up. Um, and I, so I've been tanning relatively regularly. It doesn't look like it right now, but I, I, I have, um, and I think, I, yes. So I'm, I'm also proof that MSH can raise at least in my situation and in your situation it has. So, um, and I, I'm still holding on a little bit to that Holy grail, if you will, uh, um, of trying to get my MSH as high as possible in order to hopefully repair my leaky gut situation. So that's, I, I don't know if I'll be able to, and, and maybe there are other paths to that end result, but that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. And check out the biotoxin pathway too, because uh, you talked about MSH repairing your leaky gut and that's because MSH regulates the tight junctions of your gut. So leaky gut is that those junctions aren't tight. So yeah. raising MSH could only help with that. Um, so yeah, definitely check out the biotoxin pathway if you want to nerd out a little bit about the symptoms associated with SIRS. But the next blood marker we're going to talk about is, uh, well, it's two, it's C4A and C3A. These are complements and they are a direct response to foreign bodies in your body. So C4A is typically indicative of mycotoxin mold endotoxin nectino exposure. So mycotoxins being mold, endotoxins being like sewagey stuff, and the nectinos being the bacteria that love to eat both of those things plus dead human skin, you. Um, but they are the, the, what do they call it? The chemical soup associated with water damaged buildings. And then C3A is typically, if that's high, that's associated associated with Lyme or other co-infections like EBV. This can, it helps with two things. One, it can help you see if you've been in exposure and it can also help you tell what kind of exposure you're in. So if it, C4A is high, it's more likely you have water damage exposure. Whereas if the C3A is high, you're more likely to have Lyme exposure. And then you can double check that thing with things like the genie and the neuroquant. Um, but that's what these numbers are. And they're a pain in the butt because at least my provider insists they go through Jewish national, which means I like have to go to a specific place to get the blood drawn. I can't get it done at, you know, LabCorp or Quest. Yeah, that's annoying. It's already stressful to get your blood drawn specifically for you, but really Specific. for anyone <laughs> and to have to go to a different place. That is one thing I'll throw in here. Um, Almost everyone who gets their blood drawn but for SIRS does not successfully do it completely the first time they go. And that's because of these special tests that people have never heard of, that they've never done, even at these big companies like Quest and LabCorp. But um, they don't have the additives or they don't have the right tube. Yeah. Or they don't have a way to freeze it the way it needs to be frozen at this particular facility. You have to go to the the main one over across town, which is what I was told when I was first um, uh, when I first got tested. So there there's a, a couple ways you can go about doing that. You can call ahead. And I've done that where I've read off the codes for every one of the tests and had them check that they could do all of them. And that that helps if you want to take the time to do that or you just show up and hope, you know, have them do what they can. And then if you have to go somewhere else, then you have to go somewhere else and, and you do that on a different day. So um, that me. is I wing it. Yeah, exactly. So what, whatever your style is, um, uh, do that and just be just know that that's 
probably going to happen. And don't be too disheartened by that. That's very normal, unfortunately, with these tests. Well, I hope this episode helped you better understand why this blood work is taken. I remember when I first saw the list, you called it an alphabet soup, which is amazing and delightful um because it is it's mmp9 and vgf and tgf and mhsh and c4a it's just like just every letter just take every letter please um but they are all very specific in terms of identifying SIRS and the SIRS that you are experiencing as a human being and your individual symptoms. So hopefully this gave you more context for that. And if you are looking for more resources and support on your SIRS journey, you can join us over at the SIRSgroup.com. Yep. See you there.